Don't shoot the deputies. Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. A warm welcome to everybody listening and to my co-host Steve. Now Steve, I'm pleased to say we're joined by a fantastic guest today and someone we've wanted to talk to for ages. We are indeed, Russell. We've been following Chris Such for such a long time on Twitter. Initially, we enjoyed his thoughts, tweets and blogs about education. Then we got to hear more of Chris's insights into the wonderful Thinking Deeply About Primary Education podcast. And Chris is also such an extremely generous sharer of his curriculum materials. And this year, Russ, we've been able to enjoy Chris's first book, The Art and Science of Primary Reading. We have indeed, Steve. Now, in my view, this book is an absolute triumph and is already having a huge influence on on the teaching of reading, I think, in many primary schools. Chris, congratulations on a fantastic book and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, That's a lovely introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Now, we know you've spoken extensively about the book on the Thinking Deeply About Primary Education podcast, Chris, so we won't make you repeat everything you've said already. But would you mind please giving our listeners a brief overview of what the book is about and why you felt the need to write it? And it would also be great to understand what your role is and your experience working in education thus far. So I think the most sensible way to address that is in reverse order. So I'll start with describing kind of my time in education. I've been in education since 2006, initially as a intervention teacher in a secondary school. That was only briefly, but I then decided that I wanted to work in primary education, did my PGCE. Since then, I've been in teaching for around 15 years. It's been a role in which I've undertaken reading leadership, science, maths, etc, etc. And I'm now a, a curriculum lead in a large primary school in Peterborough. Around four years ago, I was approached by a gentleman called Andrew Curry, um, a wonderful chap who is sadly no longer with us to uh, do some work with the initial teacher training provider Teach East. And this allowed me to do some work relating to reading and mathematics, working with their initial teacher trainees. I've also worked with another initial teacher training provider, um, the Torch Skit in Northamptonshire. And all of this made me really interested in reading research, because obviously I thought I need to know what I'm talking about if I'm going to be presenting things relating to what goes on in a primary classroom. What I found was that when it came to the math side of my initial teacher training, there were books that I could recommend. There was stuff that I just thought, yeah, read this. So the works of people like Derek Haylock, mm. um, Kieran Mackle, the works of Sue Gifford, etc., etc. When it came to reading, there were really interesting books on reading research, and there were some good books written about things like guided reading and things that happen in the classroom. But I couldn't find anything really that combined both views that looked at the wealth of reading research that exists from the perspective of a primary teacher. So what I decided to do was to try and write that myself. I wanted more than anything to create a concise guide to the reading research and how it can be artfully applied in the classroom. And I hope that's what I've done. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris, because that's a really useful starting point as an overview for your journey through the teacher's career that you've had. And actually, you've worked with a plethora of people and you've covered so many different subjects. Um, But today, our conversation, we're really going to think about the leadership of reading. As a starting point, Chris, if you had to pick out a few of the most important things that every reading leader needs to know about their subject, what would you choose and why? 
I think firstly, by far the most important is the idea that reading leaders need to understand the nature of our written language and its orthography, in other words, its spelling system, and what that means for teaching, in particular phonics and beyond. Specifically, what they need to know is that English is a morphophonemic language, which, which means that it's based around the representation of phonemes in symbols, but also that there's an important layer of morphology, in other words, uh, chunks of meaning that we can see that are generally held consistent in their spelling across words. Beyond that, they need to recognize what reading fluency is. Mm. So they need to recognize it and understand it as the increasing integration of all aspects of reading and that it can be seen and assessed as accuracy, automaticity and prosody. Um, effectively, are the words right? Do they flow at a certain speed? And do they sound right when read aloud? Do they sound like a natural spoken voice? And they need to understand that it's through this development of fluency that children free up the cognitive resources to be able to comprehend what they read. They also need to see the development of fluency as the slow but steady grasping of the wider patterns that exist in our English spelling system, in our orthography, and that this is something that takes time. And that also that it's something that can be supported by uh, repeated oral reading, and that's something that re obviously requires lots and lots of um, reading and decoding in school, initially, as I say, guided to ensure that this is accurate. It's only accurate decoding that is going to support the development of this fluency. Of course, though, reading leaders also need to recognise that there are other aspects to reading. In particular, they have to understand the importance of language comprehension, which is effectively children's understanding of words, the wider world, and text uh, conventions. All of this stuff is utterly uh, essential to the grasping of reading. And if you are just teaching decoding, or you're just looking at children's understanding of the language, then you are missing a trick. These things need to both be learned and integrated over time. I guess the other couple of last things I'd mention is that I think reading leaders need to have a really solid grasp of what reading comprehension is and importantly what it isn't. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to comprehension skills, they need to recognize that these are not discrete, generic, transferable skills. A child who can retrieve a piece of information from a given text can't necessarily retrieve a given piece of information from another text. And the idea that you teach it in one and that it will automatically transfer to another is unlikely. In short, what teachers need to know and need to be informed of by their school leaders, and so what their school leaders need to know, is that the teaching of comprehension is broad and it is, it's vast, effectively. What I mean by that is the teaching of reading comprehension on the assumption that a child has relatively fluent decoding skills. It involves grasping the entirety of our language, the entirety of what there is to know about the world, and the breadth of different texts and text types that exist. In short, it is a mammoth undertaking, and we only achieve it in small increments. The very last thing I think that reading leaders should know is about reading difficulties and how they might be addressed 
the key thing to take away here in a nutshell is that those with reading difficulties benefit from exactly the same sort of high quality teaching of reading as everyone else. And so it's the same on a qualitative level, but it may mean different things on a quantitative level. They may need more time with certain aspects of teaching and this is to be expected and it requires our patience and our expertise. That's brilliant. That's such a helpful set of things for any reading lead to think about. And as you were speaking, I was thinking if they want to know more about that stuff, your book's brilliant for that, as are the podcasts that you've done on the Thinking Deeply About Primary Education. And I'd also definitely recommend listening to one of our prior guests, John Walker, who's also superb if you want to really grasp that kind of history of our language and and, and the written aspects of that too. Brilliant. Now, Chris, there's been a real increased focus on curriculum design in the last couple of years, quite rightly, and many reading leads have worked hard to develop a high quality reading spine for their school. That's a mammoth task. What's your advice for schools in terms of selecting the text children will study through their journey? The very first thing I would advise people to do, and this is true with any aspect of curriculum, is to seek advice from other schools. Don't start from scratch. Um, Or even if you do start from scratch, do so having gained information from others who have already done a good job. For example, when I wanted to learn about what made a a really high quality reading spine, I started by speaking to other schools. For example, a chap called Matt Swain, who works, I believe, for the Step Academy Trust. Yeah, He really knows his stuff and he was generous enough to talk me through what they do at some of their schools. And it was, yeah really valuable stuff. So first thing to say is reach out to other schools. Twitter is a great way to do that, but I'm sure there are other ways. Once you've done that and you're starting to put your ideas together, I would say the first thing to do is to consider the variety of text type and text structure that is included in your reading curriculum. It's very common, I think, for schools to put a great deal of thought into what goes into the fiction side of their reading offer and to maybe not put the time into thinking about poetry, information texts, letters, blogs, etc., etc. Again, offering something guaranteed to students, I think, is a really valuable thing to do, not just with fiction, but also with nonfiction. I think, of course, as well, you need to consider representation. It's become a bit of a cliched expression now, but it's a cliche because people have obviously seen something so valuable in it. Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop's metaphor of mirrors, windows and sliding glass doors Mm. is really, I think, valuable as as a way of thinking about what your reading curriculum is offering. Mirrors in the sense of you want the children in your school to see themselves reflected in your reading curriculum. Windows in that you want them to see out to the wider world and sliding glass doors as you want them to be able to be kind of transported to go out into that wider world through the imaginative endeavours that they'll undertake through reading. Obviously, this idea of representation has to balance a couple of ideas. It has to be thinking about your community and what that, what kind of texts reflect your community without then becoming um, insular or parochial. So that's a, you know, that's a difficult balancing job, but something definitely to bear in mind. Something that comes up occasionally on Twitter that uh, is quite controversial and I want to kind of plant a flag on this one a little bit. While I do think that it's really important for a school to have a curated selection of fiction and nonfiction that puts a certain set of guarantees in place for children, I do also think that there's room where possible for some teacher choice. 
the idea of a teacher not being able to say, I read this book and it meant something to me and I want to show you how wonderful it is. I think if there's no room for that, at least on some level within a reading curriculum that we're possibly missing a trick, we have to tap into teachers' passion and their enjoyment in reading if we're really going to make the most of them. Of course, I'd also say with any aspect of curriculum, you have, there has to be a readiness to evolve. You have to be willing to say, this isn't working or this text is wonderful for our school and we're going to bring it in. But at the same time, there has to be a sense in which there is some sense of permanence in your reading curriculum. Otherwise, you can fall into the trap that I think so many schools do in that they don't have the texts at hand in school. So their reading lessons end up being small extracts that they photocopied and very little else. You have to commit to something mm. so that you can afford the books. Now, the reality is that buying books is relatively expensive. But for example, if you go into a school and you see they've got 60 new iPads, that could easily have paid for all of the books and nonfiction books and poetry anthologies for a decade or more. So I think prioritizing high quality texts for your reading lessons that children can use is something that I would want to consider as a school leader. I think you want to consider reading across the curriculum. So if at all possible, having information texts that relate to the topics within say your history, geography, science uh, curriculum is a good thing to do. Also think about how your texts can complement what you do across the rest of your curriculum. You might have texts that tie in nicely to things that you teach, but you also might have texts that, for want of a better phrase, fill gaps. So our history curriculum at my school doesn't have um, an aspect of study relating to South American civilization. So we don't teach the Mayans, for example. So as a way of making sure that children do get to experience this, at least, at least to some extent in our curriculum, we have a week in which they will read a text about the Mayans and that will be supported by what the teachers put in place to make that particularly interesting and worthwhile. Final thing I'd probably suggest is think about how your reading spine once put together can be integrated with the teaching of writing. Obviously there are many different ways to inspire writing and it doesn't just want to be through books but I think again to use that expression we'd be missing a trick somewhat if we weren't using the books in our reading spine to inspire wonderful writing. Chris, you mentioned there something that really interests me, which is that this kind of degree of flexibility with the, the text choices and you know, it was something we wrestled with a lot because when we selected our kind of history curriculum and, and, and geography and so on, we were being very prescriptive about the what and giving teachers more time to think about the how. And when we got to the English curriculum at first, we were really hesitant to prescribe too much. And then we sort of said, well, you know, these are entitlements. But I completely recognise your point about the teacher passion and, and enthusiasm for certain texts. When you say that about that degree of flexibility, are you seeing that in the read for pleasure slash shared reading time? Or are you seeing that in the, the core curriculum of, of study? Personally, I envision that mostly in the shared re reading for pleasure side of things. I think that's where mm. you're most likely to find teachers wanting to share books. I don't have any real issue with specifying the work that teachers are going to use with children 
in their reading sessions. But when it comes to children having a book read to them at the end of the day, I still think there's room for certain key texts to be put in place across your reading curriculum and saying, no, this is an entitlement, but having some room for maybe one or two books a year where the teacher says, no, this is a passion of mine. Let's read it together. I think, yeah. So in answer to your question, yeah, mainly in the shared pleasure, reading for pleasure aspect of the curriculum. Great. Thank you. Seriously, before I pose my next question, Chris, that was such good advice for any read and lead, particularly when developing a high quality reading spine. I just thought everything you said there, I could resonate with and think that I'd really benefit so many people. And one thing we do know from reading your book, Chris, is that you're a really strong advocate of a high quality systematic phonics program. Our experience is that often the teaching of phonics starts to become a bit shakier as we see our children progress through year one and they complete the year one phonics check. And then things become a little bit more disjointed across time. And when they move into key stage two, you get this particular band of children that may be still phonetically weaker. Um, Now, that can carry on for the years until we get to year five and six, but should reading or phonics leads be pushing the teaching of phonics throughout the school? And if so, what would the benefits be of doing this, teaching it all the way through key stage two as well? I think the interesting thing about this question is that you can only really answer it by addressing what we mean by phonics. So there is a tendency across the profession to think when we say phonics about systematic synthetic phonics, a particular program of study that we have in reception, key stage one, and in some cases with some phonics programs beyond. And that's a very sensible way to talk about phonics. It's a sensible use of the word phonics. But when I'm talking about phonics in this case, what I mean is the teaching of sound spelling correspondences and the skills of how to use them, which is kind of a broader and more, if you like, dictionary definition of what we mean by phonics. So under that second definition, and dare I say to a large extent the first, but particularly under that second definition, I think if we recognize that phonics is the teaching of the relationships between sounds and spellings, then it becomes absolutely apparent that if we are teaching spelling in key stage two, that we absolutely do need to be thinking about it with the same logic that we apply to our phonics teaching. We need to be thinking about the ways in which sounds and spellings interact. So when a child, for example, says, how do I spell this word? What we're really looking for them to ask is, how do I spell this sound in this word? Now, as I mentioned earlier, I talked about the idea of um, English orthography, our spelling system being morphophonemic. So over time, we start well we start with um, systematic synthetic phonics further down the school and over time this becomes increasingly integrated with a, an understanding of morphology understanding of these little chunks of of meaning within words so for example un at the start of words meaning negation or ing in words like having and doing that suggests um, the continuous present tense these chunks of meaning that tend to be consistently spelled across our orthography even if they sound slightly different in different words. So in short, we really need to think of the teaching of spelling as aligned with the logic of phonics because we want children to be thinking about what sounds are being represented when they are spelling, as well as, of course, as I say, the morphemes that are contained as well. 
The interesting thing about this subject is that I think it very quickly becomes apparent that the teaching of spelling and with it, the teaching of phonics and morphology further at the school blends into the teaching of vocabulary. If we are teaching children about different morphemes, we are automatically beginning to talk to them about what words mean and how we can be word detectives, even with unfamiliar words. And so we can begin also to start thinking about how this interacts with etymology. So the history of words or root words. Along these lines, if I may plug something, excuse me, but I have created a timetable that looks at spelling in this way, that looks at the spellings across key stage two, including the stuff in the national curriculum, but far beyond that, in a way that is aligned with what we learn from phonics, but also tries to integrate key morphemes and Latin and Greek root words. I would also recommend if you're interested in this stuff, um, there's a great blog by, this is their Twitter handles. So at Missy B and at Ari Buck EDU. Um, there's a great blog that, that was written by the two of them on Missy B's site about the teaching of phonics in Key Stage 2 that kind of inspired what I was thinking about. And I'd also recommend people check out a chap called Jason Wade, who always writes thoughtfully on the subject of the teaching of spelling and phonics further up the school. Yeah, really interesting chap. That's fantastic. Yeah, Sophie Bartlett, I think Missy B is, isn't she? Fantastic. Yeah, really good blogger and, and a level-headed tweeter. We like those people. <laughs> um, yeah, fantastic. And I was just thinking as you were talking about the Latin and, and Greek links there that you've got in the book, we've done a little bit of an interesting piece of work where we've looked at where those opportunities naturally come up to explore some of those Latin and Greek words in the wider curriculum. Because most people will have units, whether that be in history or science or geography where you know there can be an aside at least to one of those kind of root words or latin or greek words so uh, i'd encourage people to have a little look at where that that sort of naturally links now on to reading for pleasure chris when we spoke to the wonderful sonia thompson not long ago she spoke very passionately about the role that reading for pleasure plays in her school in improving reading outcomes do you agree with this idea that that, that kind of reading for pleasure is so key for for good progress in reading and if so, what are some of the different ways that reading leads can foster this love of reading within their schools? Yeah, I totally agree with that idea. I think the reality is that if we want children to really attain to the highest levels when it comes to reading, they are going to need to do an exceptionally large amount of reading. And while it is our responsibility in school to ensure that they are doing lots of wonderful reading, that has to be supplemented at home if children are going to achieve to the highest levels. Mm. There is this virtuous cycle that comes when children begin to enjoy reading in particular, in that the more they enjoy it, the better they get, the better they get, the more they enjoy it. So yeah, this is obviously an essential idea. I think a key point is that there is something of a bottleneck before this point though. I have worked with struggling readers for years. And what I have found is that there are certain children that I could not pay 50 pound a week to read if I had even if I had the money I could not say to them look I want you to read for 10 minutes a day and I'll give you 50 pounds a week there are children who still <laughs> wouldn't do it mm -hmm. and the reasons behind that aren't that they just don't like reading it's the fact that they've had negative experiences with reading and they struggle with it it's so tightly linked to children's sense of self-esteem that if we say to children no you must read this or you must do this reading independently 
before they are, have reached a certain level of fluency, it is just as likely to discourage them and to lead to negative attitudes relating to reading. And the last thing we want is children to associate negativity with reading. So we have to be very careful with how we encourage reading for pleasure, how we encourage independent reading. And we need to make sure that first and foremost, the thing that we do to ensure that children will have the opportunity to enjoy reading is that we teach reading well and that we don't expect masses of independent reading until they've reached a certain level of reading fluency, enough to begin to grasp the meaning inside books. So that said, there are certainly things that I would recommend in terms of developing reading for pleasure across a school. I think the most important of those is to model the joys of reading. So sh your shared reading with a class at the end of the day is massively valuable. It has to be protected time in your curriculum. You have to treat it as importantly as the maths and the reading and every other aspect because it's contributing to children's reading for pleasure and it's contributing to their the development of their language, their oracy, both of which are essential to reading development. The other thing to note is how especially important this is further down the school. When children are first learning to read, decoding is a challenge. It is for all children. And it means that reading at first won't be this wonderful, pleasurable activity, apart from the wonder and pleasure that come into it from adult support. Thus, we need to show them what they're aiming for, what the joys of reading are, so that they persist and so that they understand why they persist. And I think shared reading, shared exploration of lovely texts, and wonderful stories, that's what kind of lets children know that this is worth doing, that this is what you're aiming for. This is, you know, why we do it. I would say that I would also, as part of this, prioritize reading in homework, especially once children are relatively fluent, but before then in a way in which they read supervised, I'd strip out a lot of other stuff when it comes to homework and just keep it as, when it, in, in terms of the literacy side of things, I would say, let's prioritize reading. Let's leave that as what we're trying to do. I'd also say we need to ensure that there's lots of quality nonfiction across schools. It's very rare that I've come across a school that doesn't have a beautiful selection of fiction, but it is much more common that I go into a classroom and see a relatively limited selection of nonfiction. And there are lots of children who love nonfiction and who are less enamored of storybooks. And we should accept that and support them in their reading choices. That doesn't mean we don't nudge them towards stories in the same way that we might nudge children who love stories towards nonfiction. But we must make sure there's a collection of quality texts in every classroom. I would also say we should never discourage children from taking home a book, regardless of its difficulty. If a child says, I, want, I really want to take this book home and you know it's too difficult for them, don't say no. Have that discussion with them about the challenges that they will face with it. But say, if you want to take something from this, you want to, even if it's just, I'm going to take this home, have a look at it and then go, this looks wonderful. I want to be able to read this one day. Mm. That's a powerful incentive. There's some mm. value in that. Equally, if a child's taking home a text that you think, wow, that's a bit in inverted commas, easy for them. No problem. We want children to be reading what they want to read mostly. 
I would also, this is a kind of a strategy one. I think about the reading corners that I've had in my, or book corners that I've had in my classrooms over the years. I've had a tendency in terms of sheer amount to just have too many books. It's possible to end up over the years with an accumulation of books that ends up being almost overwhelming and children end up not being able to see the wood for the trees. I think a smaller selection of books that you know fairly well, or at least you know roughly their level of difficulty, roughly what they're about, is often more powerful than this massive selection. It also means that children are more likely to encounter the same book as their peers, which can be a really powerful way to encourage reading. A colleague of mine that I used to work with was fantastic at recommending books to children. At the start of every term, she would put a particular book when they were coming back in from holidays in their place and the children would come in. She said, learned a bit about you last time we met. I think you'll love this book. Give it a try. And it didn't always work. But the number of times that children fell in love with those books and even if they weren't perfectly matched to them, just the thought that their teacher had gone, you'd like this, just sparked something in them. So I think that's a really valuable way of doing things. I saw um, a, a wonderful recommendation the other day by the account at Teacher Glitter. And unless I'm mistaken, she might... She's about to come on the podcast. Yeah, I think you're fortunate enough to have her as a guest. Mm-hmm. Kerr Edwin Eccles. That's, that's the name. Um, and she talked about, I believe, reading the first few pages of a book with kids or the first little chunk and then closing it up and saying, well, now that book's on our bookshelf. Maybe we'll like that one. <laughs> loved that idea. Yeah. I loved that idea. I would also say ideally make a little bit of time for independent reading in the curriculum. Again, with the caveat that that will be beneficial for children who have already reached a certain level of fluency. And it's time perhaps for you as a teacher to work with those children who haven't reached that uh, level of fluency. And the last little tip, as I think we need to be quite tactical in how we teach children to stick with a book because I want children to feel free after a few pages to go, no, I'm not sure this is for me. I want to change to something different. But at the same time, I also know children that will read the first few pages of a book and they go, nah, and we'll (laughs) do that 20 or 30 or 40 times. So I think at points we have to say, you know what, let's read this first bit together. And I want you to at least read the first two or three chapters just to see if you're really into it. So being tactical with helping children know when to stick with a book is something I'd advise as well. But those are kind of the most important things, I think. Yeah, that's fantastic. That is. And a lot of what you said there, Chris, would actually apply to my next question, because I'm really thinking about that bottom 20%. Because it's one thing that reading leaders may be concerned about, and that is offset. Now, we know schools are asked about what provision are you doing for this bottom 20%? What would be your main go-to approaches for those children? I feel like a lot of what you just said will actually cover that. These children, for whatever reason, are just significantly weaker readers than their peers. So what can we do to support them in, in their own journey in wanting to and being able to be a fantastic reader? If we work on the assumption that this 20% figure is a rough way to describe just those children that are significantly behind with their reading, and we recognise that it might be more or less than 20%, depending on the class or the school, then absolutely there are things that we can do. The first thing to note is that I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all intervention approach for all of these children. Mm. There needs to be high-quality assessment to check, well, what exactly are the things that these children are struggling with? 
So it might be that there is uh, an issue relating to phonics. It might be that they don't have a significant bank of sound spelling correspondences that they understand. Or it might be that they have that bank of correspondences, but their skills of using them, so blending, segmenting, etc., that those are weak. And that can be targeted directly through a phonics intervention. And again, this phonics intervention might not be all of phonics teaching, it might be a specific aspect. Equally, it might be the case that a child has actually got pretty a pretty solid bank of sound spelling correspondences and the skills of how to use them, but they're still a long way from the fluency that you would expect in a given year group. If that were the case, then you might target fluency in particular. Now, the best way to target fluency that I think exists is one-to-one reading. But of course, that is very resource heavy. It's difficult for people to find the time and the space even to, to do that. But there are fortunately research-informed approaches that we can take to fluency, in particular things like repeated oral reading, where children read a text, a relatively short text, a number of times, aiming for a greater degree of fluency with each read. So we can target fluency directly. We can also do things like echo reading if we're looking to build confidence. But the key thing here is that the way that we support given children depends on the given deficits. Mm. If there are deficits that relate to phonics, I would target them first. If there aren't and there are issues related to fluency, I would look at them next. And under, under the very rare circumstances where a child is at a, a level of reading fluency that is fairly normal for their class and for their age and is still far behind in their comprehension, then there are a couple of options there. It's most likely the case that then their language comprehension isn't quite where you want it to be. So the breadth of their vocabulary, the knowledge of the world, that that is not where you want it to be. And frankly, I don't think, or I've not come across interventions, as it were, that are going to address that in a particular way. Mm. It's just too broad. It's Mm. too vast a subject to say, okay, we're going to do an intervention that allows you to know more about the English language. Mm. That's... How do you do that in half an hour a day or whatever it might be? So children in that circumstance are most benefited by quality first teaching, staying in the classroom and a high quality curriculum. However, there are some, and it's very rare, but there are some children I've worked with whose phonics, the skills and knowledge relating to phonics has been fine. Their fluency has been age appropriate, but they just don't seem to be comprehending the way I'd like them to, even though I'm pretty confident that their knowledge of the world and their oracy is, again, age appropriate. Occasionally, you can boost these children's reading comprehension quite quickly in a brief intervention in which you effectively emphasize the idea that they are meant to be constructing meaning. We emphasize the idea that we're meant to be working out what's going on from a text, because some children over the years, just get used to the idea of, well, I'm, I'm just decoding it and I'm not working out what's going on. And so kind of developing some of these more metacognitive, mm. for want of a better phrase, strategies can be useful. It's sometimes called comprehension monitoring, but it's little things like saying to children before you read, okay, so as we read this, let's see if we can work out what's going on or as they finished, oh, can you summarize this paragraph for me? Now, these little things are a bit like iron or vitamin C supplements in your diet in that you don't need much. <laughs> it's a small amount. And if you try and like go heavy handed with it, you're likely to be wasting a lot of time. So it's it's something to consider. But I would say that that's a very, very rare case. 
in with almost all of the struggling readers I've worked with, the issue is related to fluency or to deficits relating to phonics. That's a really helpful answer. And you, you made me think about a couple of bits from the book. One was the chapter on assessment, because you talked about how a reading lead, what do they really need to know? And we've adopted in my school that kind of, there's kind of stages that you kind of outline in a very simple table so that we can be a little bit more forensic to see where, where has the child hit that barrier? Was it at that basic year one bonnet check level? Was it at the, you know, depending on whatever scheme you use, we use sounds, right? Are they stuck at a particular stage or have they got, you know, gaps in a certain section? Is it the words per minute? And is it the prosody and so on? And we've found that's given us because we've done a bunch of, fluency checks and uh, various other things recently it's enabled us to see where those gaps are what we've got in a school like mine and I'm sure this is shared by lots of other schools across the country is we've introduced a systematic phonics program only in the last year and a bit we've introduced this brilliant reading approach that uh, came out this lovely book that's come out lately and we've got a kind of a legacy issue we've got a legacy issue of children in key stage two that probably wouldn't have been where they are if it weren't for those gaps and and the fact that we just didn't teach certain things as well as we perhaps should have in um, lower down the school and we've got children I think you're right we've got a vast majority of children being in that really rich reading environment will do the trick it will bring them up and then there's this very small minority who can't even access that stuff so if we talk about the reading fluency for example you talk in the book about mixed ability pairs and that very kind of whole class approach and that is superb I love that and then we've got this tiny section of children who just the gaps are so vast because of historical issues legacy issues they can't even keep up with the ruler and moving down the text with their friends. So for those children, you're saying is going to be probably at a phonics level and that I assume and, and they're going to need something very bespoke around that, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. If a child isn't able to do the kind of repeated oral reading mm. in a classroom context, then it's very likely down to decoding issues. Yeah. Once children have a certain ability to decode, they're able to then undertake that kind of fluency practice. So yeah, that would be a something that jumped out at me that a child maybe needed to do more work when it came to blending or segment blending and segmenting, or it might be that they need to develop the bank of sound spelling correspondences, or likely both, or it might be the case that they need to do some work with decodable books. Um, lots of things that can be used to support there. I mean, a, a really important thing to note here is that it's often the case that children will have overlapping difficulties you know and and it's often also the case that we end up saying okay let's try and put an intervention in place for x y and z and often we need to target something we need to work on something for a significant period to see an impact Mm. the other thing i'd like to note, kind of related to this is i increasingly think that year two and year three are the biggest hurdles for children, for the majority of children when it comes to the development of, of reading. Because firstly, the phonics check gives the false impression to many schools that that's where phonics ends, yep. when it absolutely shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something I think listeners should bear in mind. But beyond that, if when we're teaching decoding through phonics, we're obviously doing a, an important job for many children. And once children are able to comprehend independently because their fluency levels allow for that, then they're often at the races. And there is this gap between the two that happens in around kind of year two and year three for a lot of children, especially those that don't get the opportunity to do a great deal of reading outside school. 
And what we do in that gap is essential. We have to provide children with the decoding experience in some way in year two and year three that allows them to get to that point of fluency where they can begin to comprehend text independently. The only way to do that that I've come across is through some form of reading where, which is supervised, be that one-to-one reading where you are fortunate enough to have the, the people in school to make that happen or through things like whole class instruction where you are, like you say, working with mixed ability pairs where they're decoding a text repeatedly or even potentially that somewhat more passive decoding where a child is following along as someone else decodes for them, which is whether that counts as decoding or not is is a different issue. But I definitely say that you need to find a way in year two and three for children to be doing lots of decoding and beyond. But I think it's especially important in that year two and three gap. The reason I mention that is there are often questions where people will say, well, we've put phonics in place and actually the children's sound spelling correspondences are pretty decent now. And when we do segmenting and blending assessments, they're solid on that as well, but they're not fluent. And this understanding that phonics begins the journey, that it allows the journey to begin, it gives enough of the code and enough of the skills so that children can begin learning the wider patterns of English orthography, this orthographic learning. The essential thing is that we give children the chance to do that decoding in year two and year three that allows them to recognize the wider patterns that are in English orthography. It's sometimes called orthographic learning and it's essential in the development of reading fluency. And the only way, as I say, to do that is on a supervised level until they reach a certain level of fluency where they can begin to comprehend text. Brilliant, spot on. And I think anyone listening who's worked in that primary setting will relate to that. And we used that word disjointed earlier with phonics, but it's not just phonics, it's the whole reading strategy. And that's why your books filled such an important void for so many of us, because it's oh, what happens after year one and that, that kind of bridging. And another sort of thing that I think is partly responsible for that disjointedness is how assessment often is the tail wagging the dog in that we leap to standardise assessments a bit young and therefore we're doing that vitamin pill thing of generic comprehension skills, you know, or strategies which have a place, but like you say, a, a fairly small place. We've been quite brave this year and it's a little bit terrifying, but I, I really feel it improved teaching and learning is we're holding off any of that standardised assessment to really quite later in a child's primary journey for reading and focusing much more on you know, fluency. We've always actually looked at words per minute, but it was almost like that secondary assessment rather than actually the primary way we look at whether we're setting these children up to succeed throughout year two, three and four. So yeah, excited to see what fruit that will bear in in, in future as we make that our focus, because I think that was a, a key message of the book. You know, let's get these children being really confident, fluent readers. And it's not that comprehension doesn't come along with that or that it's, it's not this end point that just arrives later, but kind of can't do that comprehension stuff without the the fluency being pretty awesome can you yeah and it's worth noting alongside that that all of the other aspects that support reading comprehension can and should be going alongside this so the development of children's oracy the shared reading the development of children's knowledge of the world and of language through the wider curriculum all this stuff is going on and needs to go on alongside that it's just the fact that we can where necessary target phonics or target fluency 
I think there's a message for school leaders in this as well about where we target the um, support that we have in classrooms from other adults. I think we really need to see year two and year three as essential when it comes to their individual reading lessons. It might be the case that in order to facilitate fluency practice, say in year two, we have to have an extra adult in and around that class so that a group of children who aren't ready for that can continue doing phonics work or can continue working with decodable books. And that doesn't necessarily mean that every classroom has to have a teaching assistant, but it might mean that a senior leader themselves or a teaching assistant or someone is free for that particular half hour of the day. It might mean that reading lessons are staggered across a year group to allow those that adult support to be concentrated at that point. There is a sense in which teachers need to be supported with adults and that leaders need to think about the structures that they can put in place to support that where possible. I appreciate, of course, that every school is different in the adults that it has there and that these are pretty difficult times in which to be allocating adults around a school. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head earlier when you talked about resources and space, but actually just encouraging people to think creatively. I hadn't even thought about the staggered idea. You know, we all do that reading instruction time in key stage two at exactly the same time. And we're trying to think about where we fill those gaps with we know what those gaps are now. We know what most children who are struggling do need. It's just a capacity issue around how we plug it all. But just that ability to maybe think a little bit outside the box about things like timetables might just give us a little bit of wriggle room there. So that's a helpful tip. A final point, Chris, I don't really want to end the conversation, but can we talk a bit about subject knowledge uh, of teachers? And I feel like we're coming full circle because you spoke about that uh, so passionately with regards to the reading leads. It's something I've seen you tweet a lot about in the context of the wider curriculum as well. What kind of subject knowledge would come to mind for you when thinking about the teaching of reading? I feel like it might be quite a lot the same stuff we were talking about for reading leads. And importantly, how do schools get this stuff into teachers' heads, you know, with the the restrictions on time we have for CPD and so on? I think you're right. It is going to come nicely full circle. But I I think a bit of retrieval (laughs) isn't the end of the world here. I do think that school teachers really need to know about the nature of the written language and how that relates to phonics. They need to understand fluency and how to develop it. They do need to appreciate what language comprehension is and the elements of it. Generally speaking, it relates to our understanding of words, text and the wider world. I think they have to have a good grasp again of what comprehension is and thus how we can teach it and how it is this broad, wonderful, messy thing that is taught through the shared exploration of wonderful texts not through the individual targeting of seemingly non-existent generic skills. I'd say beyond that, I think teachers need to have ideally a knowledge of the books that they're going to teach themselves. Um, If you're teaching in year five and you're about to teach, I don't know, off the top of my head, something like there's a boy in the girl's bathroom, you're going to understand that and share that to a much higher level if you know the book yourself. So being given the time to actually engage with that book and to understand it inside out is is valuable. In terms of how school leaders can support the development of that knowledge, I think the best advice I can give is that it needs to be incremental. Mm. I think if you say, we're going to do an inset day and we're going to cover everything that I want us to know about reading, a noble intention though that is, I think it's not likely to succeed. I think you need to kind of stagger it through a year and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to spend a two or three weeks. We're going to look at an aspect of reading, like reading fluency, we're going to look at it in theory, then we're going to look about how that might influence our practice. And then we're going to 
as it were, practice that. We're going to go and try that in classrooms. And then later on, we'll feed back and see how it's worked, how the, the theory and the practice interacted in, in our individual setting, what we might do to adapt it. I'm bound to say this, but I do think ideally giving staff time to read uh, and time to read things that are relevant to the subject. And yes, I'm obviously going to plug my book again here. I feel no ethical issues about plugging it whatsoever, mainly because I'm, I'm not making any money from it. As people who are on Twitter will know, all the royalties are going to the Malaria Consortium, which is a GiveWell registered charity. Again, no generosity involved in that. That was purely done so that I could plug it <laughs> constantly without feeling that I was, you know, a slave to money. It, it, it just freed me up completely yeah. to just push it at people all the time. Um, so apologies for that. But yeah, I would, I would recommend my book or there are other wonderful things that teachers can read. I think, for example, there's a paper called Ending the Reading Wars, which is a wonderful introduction to reading research. So yeah, not just my book, obviously, there are, there, there are good stuff out there. But generally speaking, giving staff time to, to read things, to engage with things, to reflect on them and use them is, I think, essential, along with an incremental approach. That seems like extremely sensible advice. And what you said about the making time to review, it's interesting you say that because we sandwiched ourselves uh, in my school this week between having just a couple of weeks ago, well, we've done a couple of staff meetings already on this in the way you described, but actually we've got a lovely little review session coming up this week, which I know is going to be very much like, how's that going? You know, and give people that time to give us that feedback and you were saying before we hit record that you're really keen that people have the confidence to see your kind of suggested timetable in in the sort of final 10% of the book but have the confidence to not be uh, kind of wedded to that exact format and to make it work for your school and to blend the best bits and so on. Yeah I, I think a central idea behind the book is that there are certain principles that we can glean from the breadth of research into reading that exists these principles, however, can be applied in schools in various different ways. I think once you understand these principles, you can apply them to your context, as I say, in, in, in a myriad of ways. I have obviously in the book made, a, you know, put an example in there. Of this is one way that it could look because I think it would be selling people short if I didn't give that example. But at the same time, I'm absolutely certain that there are schools that would, that could read the book, could look at those principles and go, Actually, no, we're going to do it this way, or we're going to do it that way and be equally, if not more successful than the way that I suggest. Brilliant. Well, do buy the book, guys, because it is a superb read. And for me, you know, been knocking around for a little while in education and it really brought home that I don't think really, honestly, I ever understood how I needed to teach reading and it is the most important thing we can do in schools, no doubt about it. And I think it's sensible, it's accessible, you'll read it in a few days because it's really easy to read. It's got retrieval practice, everyone likes a bit of that, um, and other sort of suggestions for further, further reading. But, you know, we've, we've been sharing it with staff and people have been keen to borrow senior leaders' copies and have been coming back to us saying how great it is. So I fully, fully recommend this book. It, it's an absolute cracker and I think it's going to go on to uh, impact many children, most importantly, Chris, in a, in a very positive way. So thank you so much for giving up some of your time to talk to us about it. I know you've talked extensively about this book and I really hope that reading leads and senior leaders took something from today's podcast that they can go back and apply in their schools. Cheers, Chris. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. Don't shoot the deputy.